Hello, and thank you for joining Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security. My name is Ashley Burrell. I'm the Secretary of the Board for Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security. We will be producing monthly podcasts featuring women of color in the peace and security field. So please visit WCAPS.org regularly for more details. Hello, and welcome to another edition of the WCAPS podcast. Uh, it's really my uh, honor to be here once again to bring you, um, you know, s- some information and, and background on another really amazing woman who's working in the field of peace and security. My name is Ambassador Bonnie Jenkins. I am the founder and the executive director of WCAPS, and um, I want to introduce Beatrice Minecci, who is going to talk a little bit about herself and her background, and we'll talk a little bit about, you know, how Beatrice got, got into the field and. Um, some of the challenges that she that she has found in in her area of expertise, and also why why be why you Beatrice decided to get into uh, some of the areas that you have gotten into. I do want to also note that uh, Beatrice very nicely uh, did a, uh, a webinar with us uh, a few months ago, which is also on on the WCAPS website under the working group for chemical, biological, nuclear, biological security. And it was a really great. Um, Webinar, and I'm really happy that Beatrice has allowed us to spend a little more time with her um, and to get more in depth on some of the issues we talked about. So, Beatrice, why don't you introduce yourself to to the audience uh, uh, right now? Thank you, Ambassador. Um, thanks for having me on the show today. Um, my name is Beatrice Maneshi. I am Iranian American and a international development and security expert focusing on the Middle Eastern sector mainly and somewhat in Sub-Saharan Africa. I have a background in security and terrorism, but I veered much more closely into the development and economic stability and security fields um, as part of starting a independent feminist intersectional consulting firm called Catalistas Consulting. We're based out of Holland, but I'm a transplant from the States. Um, It's very great to be in Europe because I get to watch everything from both sides and I feel that I'm able to operate a little bit more easily with my own personal background being in Europe um, at this very stage, but I keep very close to uh, US policy and of course international politics always revolves this world. So I've done a lot of work in the Syria, Iraq, Iran, um, Palestine, Israel, Lebanon, all of the North African countries, and my team covers a a global scope. Um, I speak Arabic and Farsi fluently, and I'm starting to veer into French and Dutch, as well as Mm. Kurdish. Well, I am certainly jealous (laughs) of all the wonderful, all the languages that you you speak and are are speaking. So um, that's great. And, you know, you've unpacked quite a few things already there um, in, in your introduction. Um, so why don't we talk a little bit about, um, you know, how you got interested in the work that you're doing now from, you know, when did you, when, when did you start getting an interest in, you know, uh, security, international policy, um, you know, these kind of issues? Yeah, great question. Uh, I think when you're Middle Eastern, uh, you uh, grow up in households that there's always a television in the background and the news is 
always, always on. Um, and especially being Iranian American, obviously that's a conflictual relationship anyways. So I felt at a very early age that I had to be able to justify why I was American. And that always means talk, talking politics as most Americans know when they go to other places when I was in Iran. And once I moved to the US, it was also always having to talk about foreign policy. And, you know, there's always a, a security aspect uh, related to that. So I felt like I was always um, kind of acting like a, a beacon of peace or an informer, um, trying to bring more security into place. And when I learned Arabic, obviously with um, the region of terrorism being uh, coming a lot from the Middle East and the, the security needs uh, that came around there, it was natural that I kind of started veering more that way. But I really think it's when I went to um, Monterey Institute of International Studies, now known as Middlebury, Miss. Um, I really got pulled into the nuclear, biological, chemical weapons side when I originally had started off as really with a terrorism focus. And I simply think that's because um, at the time that's when the nuclear joint plan of action was starting to be negotiated um, and they just need my language expertise and the negotiation really, yeah, it took me by a whirlwind and I, I love the diplomatic side of trying to make peace and security work. So it was, uh, yeah, it was a great opportunity to get started. And I, I think it's uh, the point you make about, you know, you, you, it was in your background when you grew up watching, you know, watching the TV or listening to the TV, you know, as you went about your, your, your early uh, life. And I think that's, that's important because it really does, I think there's a lot of questions that come up, for example, with in the U.S. about, you know, a lot of U.S. folks, not, not necessarily in D.C., but around the U.S., who are not as engaged in foreign policy issues. And, and, um, and I think a lot has to do with, like you said, you know, your perspective when you grew up and, and you know, the way in which you see the world. And, um, and I've, I noted that to a number of people when I talk about, you know, the importance of getting outside the domestic and looking at the international. So I think you make a good point about how it was part of your early upbringing. Um, and because of, you know, your own background. Um, let's talk a little bit about, about the education. I'm very familiar with, uh, um, with Monterey Institute, now Middlebury. <laughs> I keep forgetting to reference the Middlebury part. Um, say a little bit more about your education. Uh, how did you come to, to, uh, to Monterey uh, Institute? And um, if there were any, in, in the second part would be, you know, in your, in your early life in, in school, were there mentors who helped you move into the area that you ended up moving into? Yeah, great. Um, so I think one thing that's great to highlight um, and maybe inspiration for people who are younger is I have dyslexia and English is not my native language, even though I have a very American accent now. So there was a big learning curve when we moved to America and I had to pick all these things up. Um, and I really was helped in high school because I always had an interest in politics and policy. Um, but English was a little bit of a struggle for me. Um, and I really had just a teacher who took me under his wing and he let me kind of write whatever I wanted to. Um, and at the same time, I started taking Arabic classes just because I always, I didn't want to learn Spanish. I didn't see interest in it. My eyes were always on the Middle East. Um, in, in high school at a, at a university level. Um, and that was a great opportunity to start just kind of having more autonomy. I think in high school, they're really trying to put you in a box and have you fit into society really well. And I'm just so anti-establishment that it really didn't do well for me. So when I first got the opportunity to start university, I was, yeah, to the wall, had such a great time. I went to first Portland State University with a full ride scholarship in the, um, 
international studies department and I was studying Farsi and business. Um, and then I decided to switch to San Francisco because I miss California. Um, and then that, in between time, I got to actually study in Syria. Um, I was there in 2010, right as the revolution was starting off. And really, you didn't feel anything at the time. Um, granted, I was young. I was just learning Arabic at the time. But you couldn't tell that there was going to be a war starting. Um, so when I went to USF, University of San Francisco, I also was just in such a great, welcoming, international, liberal environment um, that I could say those kinds of things that were kind of not always um, seen as an okay view, viewpoint or overly liberal, I guess, in the an American context of me watching the crisis in Syria unfold and seeing a lot of my friends die that I'd made while I was studying there over half a year. Um, and it really inspired me. I think that was the thing, you know, when Assad started having, using chemical weapons and chemical weapons were used, uh, especially because it's also been used in Iran, Iraq war before. I have a did a lot of research on that in the past. Um, it really, I wanted to contribute some way and I wanted to go back because when you're at a distance and all these things are happening, what can you do about it, right? Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I took a year off and I decided actually to go back to Iran and then I studied um, at Tehran University and upped my game in Farsi to be at a, a, at a business level. Um, and I was studying Arabic. Uh, as well. Uh, this time I was more in Lebanon as a result. And yeah, I didn't even try to go to another university. I went directly to Monterey because I knew it was exactly what I wanted and the exact program I wanted. And they were great. Um, they gave me a scholarship and it was allowed me to go to uh, the Kames Arabic program. And through Monterey, I had an opportunity to go to so many different UN meetings um, to get my first internship at the OPCW, to um, study abroad at American University of Beirut in Lebanon and do more research on Hezbollah and the intersections of deep policy making and got to do some research at the Galilee Institute in Israel as well. And it really opened so many doors and I got to meet so many people who are also military. And I guess I'd never really had the experience of really meeting American military people who I could get along with. And I think it was such a great and um, challenging environment that really put my work more into perspective. Um, and I still go back to the network a lot, actually. Wow, that's, you have an amazing background. Um, and you, you know, all the, all the countries you visited, I mean, you have such a, a wonderful perspective on, on issues in the Middle East. So that's really great. Um, so, but, okay, so tell us a little bit about, um, you, you started telling us about, you know, the great opportunities that you were afforded at, at Monterey. So what did you do when you graduated? Um, where, where did you head? What did you do after that? So I actually did my last semester um, in Lebanon, um, studying Arabic as well as uh, offshore oil um, legal aspects and doing more research there. But I had um, finished off with basically an internship at the OPCW Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons. It's a part of the UN's uh, disarmament branch. Um, and I worked first in the policy, I got an opportunity to be in the policy and governmental relations department, which I always thought was my jazz. But then um, I got to switch over to policy um, and scientific research. And yeah, I love research so much and got to work on making the first prototype of the terrorist uses of chemical weapons database um, and co-authored a paper for the first time with the chair of the, the 
Committee for Scientific Relations, Jonathan Foreman, who's leaving right now from the OPCW. And it was so awesome. And from there, I really wanted to go back and have my hands back on, um, yeah, being outside of policy and more with people. Um, but the great thing is, is I always get to tap back into those networks that I've created and work in parallel to UN, NATO, and different government bodies now because of that. So, and, and now you are, um, let's talk a little bit about um, your new f consulting firm you're starting. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about that and, and what, what got you interested in doing that? Um, sure. So Catalysis Consulting has been in existence for one year in its current form. And before that, I was an independent consultant for about three. Um, and it kind of actually came out of necessity. I was in Holland. I had gotten um, a great job at a startup, um, but they wanted everyone to be independent consultants to the project. Um, and at the time, I was creating a um, connection between universities in the Middle East and the West to try and do more research and collaboration work. Um, and I was, I was 24 and they asked me to be the, the academic director for the program. And I was like, really? Okay. Right. Um, and it was a legal constraint, right? And Holland being American, um, unless a company is willing to sponsor you, um, and that costs them a lot of money, then there's a, there's a loophole of like you starting your own firm. Uh, which I did that at first and then you know I kind of fell in love with Amsterdam and I started doing more consulting work for other projects through networking and suddenly I had this pile of clients um, and it started snowballing on itself so everything from social sustainable enterprises to uh, governments from environmental policy work to women's empowerment doing external evaluations and grant writing, sometimes helping create digital coursework and content, sometimes doing policy advising about how do you do a risk mitigation plan if you're planning to, for example, go to Mali or expand into Egypt um, when the Muslim Brotherhood was really in power. Um, and things just started getting a uh, knock on wood. You know, I'm so lucky. Uh, it was just a, a fluke of chance that it happened. And I now feel like I don't care if I'm overworking all of the hours because I have a great team and I absolutely adore what I do and I wouldn't want to have it any other way. That's great. There is something nice about having your own thing <laughs> yeah. and being charge of everything. I mean, it really, it really is liberating. And, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's great when, and it's great that you're getting, you know, the kind of work that you're doing and the interest cause that, you know, that's, it, that shows that you're being successful in what you're doing. Um, so let's step back in that, uh, I, and, and I went past a little too quickly because I would like to step back a little bit and um, talk a little bit more about your time at the at the OPCW because um, I know you had a you know we had it was a great conversation at, at that uh, part of the um, the webinar that you that you did and you know I'm wondering if you have any any thoughts now in terms of you know, whether, what it was like working there at the OPCW, were there challenges? And I know that I've done some engagements with them um, on women and, and, and chemical uh, issues. They've had a couple of really great meetings um, that I attended. Uh, but just kind of what was, explain your experience at the, at the OPCW. 
Yeah, I thought it was great. Um, I think getting uh, the experience of being inside of a UN body um, and the bureaucracy that you have to deal with was outstanding. Um, a great experience in that. And uh, some of the sexism I also experienced was outstanding as well. And kind of shocking coming from liberal California, you know, um, you don't think the glass ceiling is as bad as it is. Mm -hmm. uh, at the time that I was there, um, the DDG was female. There was one head of department who was female and everyone who was a secretary was female and not very many positions that were hired that were female. And I found this to be really frustrating, but kind of also um, similar to my university makeup, right? The, the terrorism and uh, non-proliferation studies department was 80 to 90% male. Um, so I was kind of used to being in male-dominated spaces. And the one thing about, um, since I'm so close to the OPCW and I keep co connection with it, is that I'm seeing that transformation happen. And I'm seeing more women going into those bigger positions and not just staying in, yeah, those kind of um, gender stereotypical positions. And uh, I, I know it's going to be a long struggle to get to the top of that, but it was, um, yeah, interesting to see. And to see women go grow um, without feeling that they have to become really masculine, I guess, and aggressive to be able to reach there. That's great. Um, it's good that you still have those connections, a uh, uh, connection there, I can watch it grow. So I think it's, uh, you know, I, I've, from my vantage point, all the way here in DC, just from um, my very intermediate connections, it does seem like the OPCW is, is taking a step is really trying to take a step forward um, and trying to embrace um, issues of diversity. So that's that's very positive and very, I mean, they actually send my organization um, updates about when they're hiring people and things like that. So I find that to be uh, very positive. I hope it continues in that direction. Um, so you talked a little bit about being in Europe and, um, and, and what it's like being in Europe right now. Um, you, could you say a little bit more about that in terms of, you know, the freeing feeling that you talked about by being, uh, being in Europe right now? Yeah. So I think one of the things that people always ask me is, uh, why didn't you go to DC? <laughs> Um, with my background and the languages I speak, it, it's a natural shoe-in. But um, what I've always felt about working for any government, especially the U.S. government, is it's, it's just so politically challenging for me being Iranian, which is part of my identity, and I kind of felt like I'd lost that being in America. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really an integral and important part to me. So um, being in Europe, I feel like I don't carry shame of being Iranian. And I, I hate to say that that's how I felt sometimes, um, in the U.S. and some of the environments I said, but um, I feel free to be able to say the political thoughts I have and have conversations with people and not to be taken as uber liberal, but rather just a rational actor. Um, often when I go back to the U.S. and I talk to various people, perhaps not policymakers always, but um, it just seems like there's so many extremes, so many extreme opinions of either really left or really right. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was really hard for me to, yeah, um, navigate that in terms of uh, having alignment of being able to really move forward as much as I would like to and not being able to be as vocal, um, especially in the DC policymaking field. You know, I remember one of my professors saying, never say anything against Israel because you'll never get a job in DC. And I thought that was 
such a shame, right? Because the whole point of being American and the American dream that my family really believed in is like the ability to have those conversations and dialogues. Um, and so I feel like I have the space to be able to do that here um, and be taken very seriously quickly. You know, I'm still only 28. And um, I think it would have to, to climb the ladder in DC would have been so much more uh, of a struggle maybe. Um, and I would have had to like limit myself and my opinions and how I could express them freely there versus mm -hmm. I don't have to do that here. Right. And also in addition, in, in, in talking about, you know, the, the limitations and how much more difficult it is in an environment. Um, what about, uh, you, um, you talk about, there's one, there's one aspect, which is being Iranian. What about being uh, a woman in the field of international security or national security in Washington? I mean, do you, how did you, did that, was that kind of also another thing that you had to, that you felt was a big challenge that, that you do not feel in Europe right now? Just curious. Um, I don't know if I would necessarily say it's worse or not. Um, definitely because there's just not, there's um, just more female political participating members, I think in most European countries and in decision-making factors. I mean, the Minister of Foreign Affairs in Holland right now is female and she's been a diplomat for many years before that. And so the security agenda kind of ties back into the Ministry of Foreign Affairs so much more. And so I think there's space to be on equal grounding as a female here, um, rather that there's not, for example, also I think it goes back to maternity leave and you not being um, someone who's seen as a risk to hire or take on to an important position, right? Like that's just not a conversation or a thought process you even have to go through there. And I think in DC it is, you know, uh, people really, if you're a young woman, the question is like, are you gonna get married? Are you having children? Is that going to risk the position that we would potentially have you in? And that's just such a shame. I know it is. I mean, that, that, that issue has come up a lot recently in conversations I've had about maternity leave and um, the challenges. I mean, we always knew it was, you know, that the U.S. was kind of behind a curve in terms of other countries, particularly in Europe. But, you know, I, I've worked in the federal government for most of my life, and it, it's really not very good <laughs> in terms of maternity leave. And hopefully that will, that will get a little better in the future. Um, so what is it that you would like, I mean, like, you said you're still only 28 and you already have your own consulting firm. I mean, um, what, what are the things that you would, what are some of the challenges that you would like to tackle in the future? Um, what are some of the, where do you see yourself? Um, I'm not going to say in five years because that's what they say for job interviews. But what, what, what do you see in your future? What would you like to do? Yeah, so I want to uh, get our consulting firm. We're doing quite well, knock on wood again. Um, and what we're doing right now is starting to get into creating methodologies. We're working right now on a methodology of countering uh, violent extremism through a feminist approach. Um, and we're going to be doing this testing in five different regions. So uh, Kurdish Iraq, um, Nigeria, Bangladesh. I haven't decided if we're going to do it somewhere in the U.S. or if we'll do it in Austria. Um, of trying to do this methodology approach to uh, see if it actually works, and that's what I'm really excited about: is creating new pathways in research that could both be applicable to what I'm doing professionally, um, but also contributing to the greater world of peace and security. Um, yeah, again through this female ethos, which is what I really feel is 
missing from the security conversation we have on a national or a global level. And how do you define uh, when you say a female ethos? I mean, how do you how do you define it? How do we know when we see that? So a lot of times, uh, a lot of the clients I talk to, uh, gender is the hot topic right now, right? But mm -hmm. uh, it seems so automatic to be like, oh yeah, women too. But no one really thinks about that, you know, to do a gender audit and what gender budgeting is, for example, or what the the different impacts of what as a barrier to women versus men and actually to think that through. And of course, when you have decision makers that are all men and security policy fields are often very male dominated, um, that conversation and mindset is not in place. And often um, in deteriorating security situations at an international level, women are always the, bear the larger brunt, the heavier burden of taking care of families once their husbands have been killed, of displacement, rape, mm -hmm. of different burdens. That I think that if there's more women in this um, decision-making space and we, we take their perspective into what do they lend to bringing instability but also security to different contexts, um, we could be making so many strides. Well, I totally agree with that. <laughs> and that's great that you're doing that, that you're looking at that. And, you know, I've also been just doing some writing on that very issue. So um, I'm, I'm very, I'm very, yeah, I'm looking forward to where all of that ends with you because I think it's exactly what we need to be doing. Um, so let's just say, just, I just want to uh, switch to the last topic in terms of, um, uh, and then, you know, anything else that you may want to want to bring up before we before we end. Um, looking at the next generation um, of of young people, um, of young girls, of young young Iranians. Um, you know, what what I guess one one question is, what would you what would be your advice um, to uh, young girls who will, if they're not already, are going to be asking you lots of questions <laughs> because because of, you know, your role and, and, and your accomplishments. Um, you know, what would you tell them about, um, you know, achieving their dreams in the future? Um, and then, um, you know, second would be, what do you tell young people, uh, young Iranians or uh, young people from the Middle East about, you know, their future, what they should be hoping for. Um, just give some of your thoughts on that, um, it would be great. Yeah, great. Um, I think something that's always been different for me and I, I've struggled with before, but I really see it in some of the junior members of our team and younger people that I come in contact with is not having their voice yet of doubt, um, of feeling that they should apply for things that are under, um, for not, for not um, chasing their dreams as, fast and as hard as they should are believing in themselves. I think, um, especially as women, we're told to not take up as much space, to not speak up as much, to be quieter, um, to not um, reach too high. Uh, and in that, in that period, um, we end up going for positions and being under and overachieved for qualifying jobs um, and not going into those places that might be a little bit over what you think you could actually fit into. But, you know, there's a learning curve for every job. And just because you're not the person with the six years of experience for something, if you have three, if you have four, like still apply. Maybe you have other skills that um, are really going to contribute to that. And, oh, should I go into this program or not? Maybe it's like too much. I mean, it, you don't know until you try, right? And mm -hmm. just be loud 
and present and make sure that you're, you're not giving up space because you feel like you have to be meek. Right. Don't self-select yourself out. <laughs> yeah. And that's something that unfortunately we do a lot. Um, yeah. Um, so before we end, um, I just wonder if there other, you know, when we talk about, you know, women in the field of peace and security and, uh, you know, my organization focuses on empowering young women and highlighting women who are in their mid-career, um, who are doing amazing things that we don't hear about. Um, you know, I just, I don't know if there's any, any thoughts you have on, I guess some final thoughts on the area of women in peace and security and the importance of women in this space, if you had any parting words. Yeah, I'm going back and forth right now um, from a lot of different sessions that I've uh, attended of looking at a uh, Syrian peace process, for example, or even uh, Women Delivered 2019 uh, and discussions around uh, policymaking. And I feel, I don't know if I fully believe in quotas, but smart quoting, I think, is a really important thing because there just needs to be women and young women at the decision-making table in those conversations. Um, I see a lot of times maybe there's very senior women and of course they're great, but it's, they're not the new generation and these problems will be inherited to us. So I really think that there should be more effort um, at a policy level and at uh, all levels of security and governance work of having women in these positions of creating smart quotas that not have women in those positions, but also attract them to want to be in those posts. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. Um, and, you know, we, we've often talked about the, the problem of, you know, too many older men, but I think you're right. We just need to make space. I mean, one thing I always try to do, for example, is, you know, whenever we do a discussion, uh, making sure there's always at least one young person on who's out there saying things and being on a panel or being a moderator or just being um, seen, um, because I think it is a challenge here in Washington in terms of giving giving the space to the seasoned individuals, which I, which makes sense, but I think you you know, we have to recognize that we have a whole generation that's going to be inheriting this earth and the problems. And so we need to get them engaged and to start thinking about solutions early on. Um, so I think I'm going to end it at that. Um, I, I want to thank you for taking the time. I know that you're busy and actually you've taken the time twice uh, with with my organization, uh, both with the webinar and with this podcast, so I want to thank you again. Uh, good luck with the with with your consulting. It sounds like it's going great. Um, I'm very uh, interested in hearing about you know how some of your research turns out um, because you know I'm I, I think the questions you're asking are the right questions we should be asking. Um, so thanks a lot, Beatrice, and um, talk to you soon. Great, thanks. Thank you for joining Women of Color, Advancing Peace and Security. Please visit WCAPS.org. That's W-C-A-P-S dot org.